So this is the first occasion of us gathering together as an entire community for a long while, actually, several months. All the separate retreats and uh, quarantines and comings and goings. And so it reminds me that, as with everyone, uh, our lives are not lived alone. And we always live in a human context. Very obvious at this time, we physically see people around. Yeah, when you reflect upon it, and if you're in solitary retreat, someone's cooking the food, someone's built the kuti, Someone's made their donations to support it. People have been out tidying and cleaning and working, make sure the place is well kept. People in that place you're dwelling have struggled and suffered and had realizations and commitments. And, and the result of all that is we have this. And uh, you're sitting in this. Some of you see, some of you don't see. Some of you remember, some of you don't remember. Some of you don't know. But you should know that you're in a web of goodness. Simply speaking, punya. And uh, this goodness is not just pleasant feeling, it's actually bright aspiration, bright actions. Right actions of body, speech, but primarily all that comes from bright actions arising from the heart, the wish, the inclination, the gladness, the appreciation, the resilience, the relinquishments that are required to service and support this web. We're not breaking away from it on our own ripping it apart with conflict, dismissing it, shrugging it off, not being experiencing gratitude or appreciation. And prepared also to be part of that, putting our bright aspirations, patience, even just patiently forbearing, is better than impatiently not forbearing. <laughs> yeah. Acknowledging irritation and not following it is better than having irritation and following it. So this uh, bright web is actually available. So every time we acknowledge qualities that we realize are pretty disruptive, discordant, and we don't follow it, we investigate it, we calm it, we understand it, we relinquish it, that's very bright. This is supremely bright. This is the karma, the actions that lead to liberation, cleaning, Jitta, cleaning the heart of its confusions and distortions. So you want to keep returning to that recollection of the web, the field of merit, which uh, supported this Buddha Dhamma over these millennia. It's always fresh, it's always being regenerated by every individual and collective that participates in it. So you're not 
far from that, you're not removed from that. Even those humble qualities that we bring forth in terms of our diligence, our mindfulness, our uh, practice, they're all feeding into it. And others will benefit from that in due course. This is great. What are we alive for? You know, look at your life purely individually. It's kind of a bit of a dead end, really. Have a few interesting experiences, pleasant experiences. Meet this, work that out. But kind of so what? (laughs) But then if you feel your, your life has been for the benefit of others, then it doesn't end, really, does it? See what I mean? It doesn't come to that cul-de-sac, that dead end of, so what? Because the energies, the virtues, the qualities permeate and they're carried into the field and the field continues. So we, this is great to tune into that. This is right view. There is good results of good deeds. There is that which is offered, that which is given, that which is sacrificed. Mm. These efforts, these qualities should never be underestimated or um, moved away from. Mm. Now, within this, of course, we have our individual karma, our individual inheritance. My body, feelings happen to this one. My mindset, the feelings that happen based upon that mindset. My health, the qualities of feeling and contact, energies that happen according with my health, not with yours. Separative qualities. Everybody has those. How do you get the clearing and balancing on the individual, the microcosmic level. Well, we can also, if we bear in mind the sense of the web, it's very likely when you investigate it, you're also a web, you're a microcosm. Physical feelings, mental feelings, disposition, skillful, unskillful, all weaving together. And this is your field, your individual field. You could say it sits within the larger one, it's a microcosm. And then we have this field of Dhamma factors, which, you know, you can list them all, 37 Bodhipakya Dhammas, including the four right efforts, and the five Indriya, the Idipadas, Bojanga, all these lists. So this represents a, a web of factors that I won't go into now. So they're available. They're not out there. And uh, practice is to potentize these indriyas and balas, strengths, enlightenment factors, and so forth. Uh, and we cultivate it correctly, with right view, this will actually permeate, saturate. This is the highest merit, the highest kind of punya, one who cultivates those those energies, those actions, those thoughts, those inclinations, those silences, 
that spaciousness, that also has a profound effect on the entire connected cosmos, you could say. As we can recognize the Buddha himself, one individual, apparently, one body, 80 years, not enormously long life, massive field arises from that being, and we can still inherit and practice with. So lining up. Individually we have a, you know, a set up, a six-fold sense consciousness and forms that it detects. Six-fold sense consciousness detects forms, sights, sounds, touches, fragrances, and thoughts, all these come bubbling in. And what happens with that? You have one base, the mind consciousness, mano vijnana, which internalizes these. So we see something, and it doesn't stay out there. This impression touches something intimate, not out there. Call it heart, chitta. The the heart has its inclinations, its impulses, its aspirations, its confusions, its fears, its pains. This is kind of what we're here for on a very intimate level. It's to clear and purify the citta. As it's the heart of consciousness. Because... What becomes more apparent over time is you think you're seeing the world out there, you think you're remembering the world out there. Actually what's happening is your heart is directing your attention to certain features that it finds where the feeling is strongest. Things that delight, things that annoy, things that uplift, things that crush is driven towards powerful feeling. And when you're in a powerful feeling of that which annoys you or disappoints you, you don't notice pleasant sounds. You don't notice neutral contact. You don't notice (laughs) what's potentially there in the field of potentials. And Monastery like this, perfect example. On many levels, people come here, what a beautiful place. Nature, peaceful, quiet, comfortable. You know, see that. Lovely place. And yet, when one's in one's suffering and struggle and irritation, you don't see that. <laughs> or you kind of see it, but it's out there, so what? What we see is that which we, is the most powerful feeling for us. And you recognize of all sources of feeling, tactile, olfactory, and so on, most powerful source of feeling is that which (laughs) is generated through mind. And this mind has two aspects. One, it has attention, it's able to locate, and form a concept, manas, 
manas it's called, and there's another facet, citta, that which receives the impression that manas has located and trembles when it receives it. Yeah. This is why you find yourself annoyed because the lawnmower broke down. And that stays with you. Or if you're happy because somebody bought some chocolate buns or something, and that stays with you. Or if you're, you know, the rest of it pales in significance. <laughs> and once you're in a community, you realize, oh, that we'll see things rather differently. And that's one of the benefits of being in a community. Uh, and you get, oh, that's just mine. And it's not even mine exactly, because I didn't have much say over it. It just got me. It just grabbed me. It just poked me. I didn't want it to, but it did. <laughs> I didn't decide. It just happened. His heart is tilted towards strong feeling. And it starts to make particular areas of life, areas of experience, which we get personal interest in. And that's where the hate arises, and personal interest. What I favour gets me excited or annoyed. There's a benefit of more of the practice of being in a community is to be able to, yes, so that's that, but look at it more broadly. Mm-hmm, well, well, maybe so, so, yeah. you know. How do you do it without being in some context that's bigger than you? How do you get perspective on your yourself in a way that's not just criticizing yourself or getting to why am I so obsessed with this particular thing? Getting too intricate. I just know this. This particular form, this particular inclination arises. And it's always measured around contact and feeling and sankara, which the leading sankara is this sense of a triggered impulse, a reaction that jumps up. Yeah. Yeah. Good or bad. But the ones we we notice or, or consider as, as defiled are the ones that jump up reactively. They're not measured, considered inclinations. They're this reactive jumping up. And that's the blur. Stuff jumps up, take things for granted, we react. Why is that? Because we don't see how that reaction occurred, so it's marked with ignorance. It's just a bounce from pleasant, unpleasant contact. And so we want to pause around all that. We can review these places where reactivity occurs. And maybe, uh uh-huh, what is, see things in perspective. That which I'm reactive about perhaps is not worth finally 
having the energy rush through and following it doesn't take me to any way good. It takes me deeper into my personal world and we, you know, we lose contact with the web that supported us and nourishes us. So we have that possibility, you either, you can cultivate skillful impulses and intentions, skillful sankaras that seem to line up with the web of Dhamma, or ones that just go into the tangle of self. And it's an individual choice. <laughs> so it's not denying individuality, it's just lifting individuality out of the habit, habitual, obsessive place, which we often don't realize until you put it in a larger context. You know, that's just my take. Hmm. In terms of the wider context, not very significant at all. Just another detail. So I've used group form. And even when one's on solitary retreat, it's still the sense of you're in a field of blessings. There's a sense of respect and care and integrity towards that where one is receiving guidance, support, and training for enlightenment. If that's what you sense, that's what you feel about, then you should make that strong. You feel this is definitely going in the right direction for you, then you should make that resolve upon that, so you get ready to meet the challenges that occur when the distortions, the chitta, the self Aspects start to push and struggle and produce negative feelings and impressions. This is the principle of grounding. Mm. Grounding. Mm. Grounding because once you have some grounding, then you've got a, a kind of a, you've established it clearly. Uh, wisely, reflectively, okay, this is this is where I'm standing, this is the main thing, everything else I'll just prioritise the ground, the grounding, other things going to rise and pass, but I stay on the ground. I'm not just flickering around like a like a feather in the wind, the wind of my chitta, of impulses, establishing grounding. Uh, and this means several things. It means one reviews one's precepts. Okay, make that my ground, part of my grounding. Community, make that part of my grounding, because that's where I am. Um, monastic retreat, okay. Then these routines, okay. Uh, and within that, honouring Buddha. Established it, Dhamma, Sangha, honouring it, living in accordance with that. Yeah. Grounding principles. So this helps us to find a raft in this very flooded, swampy sangsara. And but of course, you know, once you make it your ground, it's not something that 
is imposed, but something that you you place yourself in and remember to and do repeatedly. The more you do that, the more you're turning your jitta energies towards that practice. And as practice bears fruit, gives us stability in a world of change, gives us perspective where the emotions often don't have perspective. The emotion of the moment is the most powerful thing happening. The impulse of the moment is the most powerful thing happening. Mm. When they come running through, lose your ground. Because that impulse, that emotion rushes through, we get knocked around by it, we follow it, we fight with it, we wonder about it, and we've lost perspective on the Dhamma, the web. Just another emotion and impression to be met clearly looked at, reviewed. For that, you have to have that stability to be able to (laughs) do that. Not just in your emotions and impulses, but standing next to them on the ground. And the practice of meditation, within all that, we encourage, as I encourage, to use the sense of the body as a grounding, as a reference for grounding. Sit, we stand, we sit, we walk. Lie down, even lying down could be grounding when you're agitated or stressed out. Feeling the simplicity of the body. Which uh, has its own uh, movements. It's not a matter of thought. And this gives you something you can actually detect Whereas we might remember the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, we might remember Chittaviveka, we might remember, you know, we're on retreat, but we really know we're in a body. Don't have to remember it. And you know, and it's also quite crucial because, you know, if you're not careful in that body, you can get into a serious pain and discomfort. Yeah. So it's that sense of, Come on, you know, make it steady, open it up, make it comfortable, you know, settle yourself in that. And within that, then, if you're really centering much more in that, uh, for a start, you're not just going out into sights and sounds, remembering thoughts, ideas, using that. Sitting, standing, walking, primary grounding practices. And for these all require the upright position, the upright spinal axis, which is a very grounding feature, because if you get that right, all the weight of your body, your upper body, comes down in a straight line into the pelvis and into the floor. You can't get much more grounded than that. Standing, same thing. Stand so the weight of your shoulders, your bones, so forth is going right down into the ground and no tilting, leaning, fidgeting. So it's got a, there's a very clear, strong, the body gives a very strong, simple, energetic message. Yeah, stable. Ah, bring your mind to that, your attention to that, your heart to that. Ah, drink it in. One of the benefits we have 
of citta is it's also sympathetic to body energy. It gets affected by the manas, the mind dropping ideas into it. It's also profoundly and naturally sensitive to what's happening in the body. That's the deal when you get born. It's plugged in for survival. So we can use that. He's coming back to those positions. And how is it steady? And how does it get more comfortable so you, your heart enjoys it? It's not just gripping it tight, but enjoying it. And we notice several other features that come with that, which are helpful. And these are pertinent internally and externally. And these are spaciousness. We all pray we don't want to be pressed, we don't want to be congested, we don't want to be tangled up, we want some living space. We don't want to be in the middle of a desert, but we want to have enough room to move and to feel unconstricted. Now, of course, the mind gets very constricted in its proliferations, in what it creates, in its tangles. It can get intensely constricted with its obsessions and worries. The point in which they all seem valid, maybe they are, but when it's all tangled up tight, you can't get any perspective on it. You need spaciousness. Where does it come from? Hmm. You can't think space, you can't create space. But if you come into your body, you notice right in front of me, skin boundary, beyond the skin boundary, Around, behind, above, there is space. And what does it mean? It means no pressure. No pressure. It's not good, it's not bad, it's just absence of pressure. It's not impulsive, it's not pushing one way or another. It's open, spacious. And you sit attending to that sign, spaciousness. You get that sign. When your chitta tunes into that, it enjoys it. Ah. And it begins to pick up the sign of spaciousness. It knows what it is. The absence of urgency, the absence of imperative, the absence of opinions. Ah. Compulsions. Ah. Yeah, that's better. And those qualities, groundedness and spaciousness, are both established through mindfulness, one of the paramount qualities in the field of Dhamma, and sustained through um, effort, another paramount feature. So mindfulness needs that steady, persevering effort. It's not a struggle to make something happen, it's just the energy application to sustain that's right effort sustaining what is the most important thing to sustain most important thing to sustain is mindfulness right mindfulness and right mindfulness will keep you in touch with what's beneficial and so groundedness spaciousness Picking that up, 
feeling the benefit of it. Jitta may be not entirely wise, but it's not stupid either. Otherwise there'll be no liberation. So we pick up, oh, that feels steadier, that feels more comfortable. Ah, I don't have to get so head up about that, so excited about that, so irritated by that. Oh, yeah, things change. (laughs) I seem to remember somebody telling me that. (laughs) Things pass. Things are passing. The groundedness remains. Spaciousness remains. Anything else? Hmm. There's something about um, the calming effect of rhythm, natural rhythm. Another significant feature. The mind is by and large very erratic. It's spasming, surging, it sinks. And when it's driven by manas, the conceiving mind which picks upon objects and can, can get a lot of energy you know, into this abstract world of concepts. So, you know, it builds up energy. It's kind of speedy. Sometimes it's overloaded, clogs, goes dysfunctional, and sinks. <laughs> oh. And then rise up again, and particularly in a highly organized world and technologically organized world, often our thinking mind, our manas, is tethered to artificial, abstract systems that don't have the same calming, steadying effect as a body does, which is our home. So. Most obvious rhythm in the body is breathing. And experiencing breathing. It's calming, it's also true. It's also not socially created. And it does help a moment at a time, moderator of mental intention, mental impulse. It sustains moment of time, steadying, smoothing those rough, ragged, lurching mind. And it happens by itself. So the effort we're making isn't to make breathing happen, just to stop running away from it and to relax back into that. And you notice something, if you stay with that, the phases of it, you get these rising qualities and the subsiding qualities and the kind of hovering qualities which occur as the inhalation turns into the exhalation, the exhalation turns into the inhalation. There's no real break. It's not one after the other, it's just an unbroken ribbon of breathing in and breathing out that goes on for this lifetime. But what it does, it goes through the phase where it reclines and subsides and reforms. And that's a very helpful aspect, what we call the pause, 
So it's not even a pause, it's just the way the energy changes. Quan's down, and with that Quan energy, you follow it, it goes beyond the will, as a release into that open space. The breathing subsides, releases into, then (laughs) what's that? It's not dead, still present, still here, still knowable. And it's quiet, but it's not dead. The energy is collecting and then it draws in. Inhalation comes, moves through and it comes to the end of the inhalation, it slows down, you get an opening, bright opening, again into what? feels open, bright. Then changes again. So these places are places where mental preoccupations can be just released because there there's no will, there's no impulse, there's no intention at all. There's nothing really to grab hold of or complain about or anything and then it changes so it's a kind of refreshing cleaning out the tangles so just like you're grooming a horse you're brushing, brushing, letting the breathing brush through you get familiar with that process of a rhythmic effect that you don't have to do Or be good at. Uh, tune into. Of course, it's on a more subtle wavelength than the normal flood of input. So, again, walking, another rhythmic process. Now the body swings, moves its limbs, slightly turns, shifts its weight as you walk up and down. Same kind of thing, got the grounding effect, spaciousness around your body, and this rhythmic body, embodiment, moving along, moving there. When you're walking, remember you're not walking towards something visual, you're just walking through the space around your body. Your eyes can be quite soft, not peering at anything. You relax your muscles that you don't need, let your body walk, experiencing space opening around you, simple, grounded, spacious, rhythmic qualities. These have an effect, and then they dislodge the compulsions, the impulsiveness, the moods, and all that. What's left? Something bright, receptive, steady, quiet, open. Potential. It's got potential because it's not already cluttered, 
not fabricated. Our lives are made fresh, bright, receptive. This is for our own welfare and must be for the welfare of others. This is the way we can practice, whereby we're aware of others and the field of our community in a way that is non-obstructive, non-contentious, sharing spaciousness, sharing rhythm, sharing ground, uh, sharing practice. So let's take some time for some direct uh, silent practice through the day and uh, wish each other well on this, uh, this session. <laughs>